what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Richard Dawkins is a world-renowned evolutionary biologist and science communicator, known for his outspoken support for science as an approach to finding out what's true and for humanism. His book, The Selfish Gene, published in 1976, overturned our understanding of natural selection and was named the most influential science book of all time in 2017. His book on atheism, The God Delusion, published in 2006, caused a global sensation on publication and has sold over 3 million copies worldwide. He's a fellow of the Royal Society, as well as the Royal Society of Literature, and is an Emeritus Fellow of New College Oxford. He's also a long-standing patron and previous Vice President of Humanists UK. Richard, thank you for joining us on What I Believe. Thank you. I don't think it makes sense to start anywhere other than with science. Science uh, has been the keynote of your life. What was it that first stimulated your interest, this lifelong passion with science? My father was a scientist. He, he read botany at Oxford, and I read zoology. Um, I went into the science uh, stream at school. I'd say I rather drifted rather than went there out of actual dedication. And it wasn't really until I got to Oxford that I, really my second year at Oxford, that I became really passionate about science. And what was it that ignited the passion? I think it was the Oxford tutorial system where, um, at least in my time, I don't know about in yours, uh, we had um, one-on-one tutorials mostly. Yes. Yeah. And so I had to go into the library every week and read original research papers, not textbooks, just original research papers, and research at the end of them, following up the bibliographies in the end of the, of the papers, and really become what well, kind of amounts to a world authority on a very narrow subject during that one week, because <laughs> yes. even, even the tutor hadn't read it up so recently as the pupil had. And so when I wrote my essay, I really felt I was breaking new ground. Of course, I wasn't really breaking new ground, but <laughs> it kind of felt like that. And that was a very heady experience. And that's what appealed to you, being on the threshold of discovery in that way, that intoxicated you? Yes, it wasn't so much research in the lab. It was more in the library. It was more thinking about um, intellectual problems. Many of the essays that zoologists at Oxford got asked to write were things like, oh, the the, the origin of the vertebrates, that kind of thing, where, where not much is known and you have to kind of sift the evidence such as it is and come up with uh, a kind of synthesis of your own. And I love that. So it was putting it together, composing it or jo- joining the dots? Yes, joining the dots and, and imagining as well, thinking, I think my essays were probably rather too imaginative, um, but uh, the, the, the tutors seemed to like them okay. This is an interesting dimension I think for uh, certainly for me to listen to who's not a scientist and for others to uh, listen to as well because of course there is still a, a popular total mischaracterization of scientists as dry um, as you know uh, very um, desiccated materialists you know um, rationalists but you're talking now about imagination about um, you know 
almost um, being creative in the in the pursuit of science. I suppose my essays as an undergraduate were kind of amateurish prose poetry. Hmm. Uh, they were they were anything but desiccated, uh, and as I said, I think perhaps they were they should have been a bit more desiccated than they were. <laughs> um, but um, yes, they, they were imaginative. They were they aspired to be poetic. They probably didn't succeed, but they certainly aspired in that direction. You've spoken about science being the poetry of reality. What do you mean by that? Yes, I did approximately mean that. I think that's, that science should be imaginative. Uh, I've always been a great believer in what I call the Carl Sagan approach to public understanding of science, trying to arouse people's imagination, trying to excite them with the romance of science rather than the practicalities. I contrasted the Carl Sagan approach to the, the non-stick frying pan approach where uh, the space race, for example, was advocated on the grounds that the non-stick frying pan was a spin-off a spin-off from it. That seemed to me to be the worst possible reason for, for going into space. Um, we need to probe space with telescopes, with giant telescopes, and, and really uh, try to understand the universe in which we live, which is a, a very, very exciting and romantic thing to do. If that's how you're inspiring people, and what, what you're saying, I think, is that, that you, you, know, you inspire people to science by focusing on that um, imaginative, creative sort of sense of wonder um if that's how the means by which you're interesting people in science what's the reason that you're interesting people in science i mean what's the purpose of science as, you're, as far as you're concerned why why try to interest people in it at all well that is the main reason of course science is useful as well and and science is i mean it's science that's given us the the uh three or four different vaccines against covid19 for example mm. that's of course terribly important but that's not why i'm interested in in promoting science. Um, I'm interested in it from the point of view of exciting people's romantic imagination. So it sounds like science, I mean, science is obviously a way of finding out what's true, but it seems like science is more important to you just as a way of enjoying yourself, as a way of being fulfilled. Yes, that's putting it in a rather self-indulgent way. <laughs> uh, um, it's both then. Um, yes, I mean, I, you, you could say um, that, that, you know, Beethoven wrote music to enjoy himself. Uh, yeah, there's nothing uh, um, wrong with that. Well, yes, I suppose, but enjoy is a rather demeaning word. Um, do you think so? Actually, he probably wrote it to, to make money. But, yeah, well, that's why most people actually do most things when you look yeah. at it for um, careers. Uh, well, okay, you can call it enjoy if you like, uh, but um, I think that doesn't quite do justice to it, put it that way. You think it's more noble than that, I suppose? It's not just it's a hedonic. Yeah. 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 I think that um, it's interesting that you that you slightly gibbered uh, uh, at it being described as an enjoyable because of course one of the things that I'm always quite keen from a humanist point of view to promote is the idea that you know enjoying yourself is is okay it's a, it's a good reason to do things and what did we remember when we launched the atheist bus campaign you know it was uh, enjoy your life was part of the of the slogan there so I think that's okay to, to pursue science to to be fulfilled to be happy Yes, I agree with that. Uh, putting it as be happy is a little bit better. Be happy, yes. Um, I think uh, I, I react slightly against the, I mean, I, I was professor of public understanding of science, and so I thought about how to promote science. And I came up against people who wanted to promote science as being fun. Mm. And so I would go to sort of science festivals and see chemists making loud bangs and making things go fancy colours and things. 
I felt that fun wasn't really quite doing it justice. It was sort of making it seem almost too easy. Uh, I'd like to say that science is, well, it's difficult, but it's worth it because uh, um, although it's difficult, there's something immediately worthwhile about it, whereas calling it fun, uh, I think, doesn't do justice to it. And enjoying enjoyment slightly conveys the word fun to me (laughs) <laughs> Happy, happiness is better in the human yes sense. i suppose because it speaks of a sort of a sense of fulfillment a worthwhile pursuit as well as just a pleasure what else do, do you do you think um has given you meaning in your life apart from the pursuit of science that sense of fulfillment music um nature i suppose that's still a science in a way but but beautiful beautiful places um loving human relationships those are three t- top ones anyway. They're pretty big categories of thing, yes. aren't they? Oh, poetry um, too. And poetry as well. So we'll come back to poetry, I think. But but staying with nature, you've written about the sense of awe and the sense of wonder. Um, I remember reading a, 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 a something you wrote about you know, the, the Grand Canyon and the earliest human fossils and the, and, and the feeling that a thoughtful human being has when they encounter and respond to those things and it sort of sounded to me like like this thing that more spiritually inclined people might almost call transcendent this this idea of being taken out of yourself how do you respond to that yes i mean transcendent is a word that in a way has been taken over by the religious people it it's a word that i would use but for the fact that it has been hijacked as i say and what would you mean by it what's the feeling that 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 you're we're trying to describe there it's that same poetic imagination that we've been talking about already. Just, I think it's another word for it. And poetry puts that it puts that into words. I guess that's why you also appreciate poetry. I suppose so. Yes, although I'm rather almost sh- ashamed to admit that my favourite poet is W. B. Yeats, who who's huh. mystical and uh, in, in many ways deplorable. But but I just love his language. Is there a problem with that? I mean, are, are you ashamed to admit it? I don't think you are really. I think it's just a, a way of putting it. But um, And I know what you mean. But in a sense, I think that poets have sort of got the right to be mystical a little bit. We know that they're not talking facts. They're, they're, they're trading in experiences and feelings. That's right. right. Yeah. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right there. But, but, but Yeats himself believed in fairies and all sorts of ridiculous things as well. Mm. Yeah, I wouldn't look to him to describe how the universe is. That's no, very, very much. <laughs> That's definitely right. Very much not. You think, I think, that it's important to um, communicate clearly. I know that one of the things you admire about uh, Darwin, for example, and you chaired our, the Human Chicane Darwin Lecture for many years, and I remember you saying one of the things that you admire about Darwin is not just his, um, his intellect, but his, his style, you know, his, his prose and the way that he communicates. Do you find in, in your own life, have you um, found that it's your writing or your speaking? And of course, now your speaking is all over the internet, uh, you know, and, and reaching audiences bigger than, than ever before. Do you think really it's, it's your writing or your speaking that you're most proud of looking back at it? Writing. Hmm. I labour mightily over it. I, la- I, I, I labour over every sentence and revise and revise and revise. And uh, sometimes when journalists ask me to put into a few words what I said in some part of some book, I rather resent it because I, I sweated blood over getting exactly right. <laughs> and then I'm asked to, to improvise. And, and I say, well, I can't do any better than just repeat what I said in the book. Um, so yes, the answer to your question is, 
is is writing. I mean, what I admire about Darwin's style is the way he he really, really wanted to be understood. He 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 wasn't pulling the wool over anybody's eyes. He wasn't being uh, pretentious. He he really powerfully wanted to be understood, and not everybody does. I'm sorry to say. Is it something you value the desire to be understood? Immensely, you value it in others, yeah. Immensely, yes. Um, I mean, I, I don't think that Darwin was was a great poet. Well, he he rises to poetic levels in a few places, like the last paragraph of the Origin, for example. Um, but uh, mostly, I think he's striving to be absolutely clear and to and to leave his reader in no doubt of of what he means. It sounds to me as if you admire that, but also you think there's a certain morality to it. You think that's a good a good way to be. Do you think there's a moral quality to that? You know, people should be, people should try hard to be understood and not to obfuscate. Well, I think there's something almost positively immoral about a deliberate attempt to obfuscate. And I think, I'm sorry to say, I think there are some people who who actually would prefer not to be understood because it makes them sound profound. Uh, And that I really disapprove of very heartily. Do you think it's a risk today? I mean, some people would say that it is on the rise. I don't know. I suspect so. I mean, I'm vulnerable to the accusation that I just don't understand it. But um, uh, put it this way, I think I would rather um, go down as somebody who failed to understand than as somebody who's gullible and credulous and foolish enough to be taken in by obfuscation. Have, have you ever been taken in? Is, is there anything in your life that you look back and think, gosh, I was a real sucker for that and, that, and now I see that it was... Uh, yes, I, I think so. I think mm. so. I think um, the phenomenon of man by Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, uh, which was a, a kind of vogue book in, I think, the 1960s. Uh, I was taken in by that as an undergraduate because he has a kind of prose poetic style which resonated with me at the time. I mean, resonated with me as a, in, in the same spirit as my own essays were kind of aspired to be prose poetry. And I think I had my Eyes open to that by Peter Medower, mm. uh, who, whose review of the phenomenon of man I think is the most, the, the, the greatest negative book review ever written. I strongly, strongly recommend it to anybody who wants to to see a wonderful piece of taking down. And I've immediately felt I've been fooled. Uh, I've been taken for a sucker over that. And you were glad to be enlightened, I suppose. I mean, that's the other thing. It sounds like you think that the um, good communication is a moral enterprise and, and to deceive is immoral. But it also sounds like you have a certain joy there in, in finding out that you've been wrong, finding out the truth. Yes, I, I did have a joy in that. And, and sometimes people tell me, uh, you'll never get anywhere if you tell people they're idiots. Uh, and um, I kind of see what they're saying. But on the other hand, I felt I'd been an idiot over Tayyar de Sharda, and I and I didn't resent. I I didn't resent that. I I did feel joy in that, and I and so, um, I I I'm not entirely persuaded by people who say you will never change anybody's mind if you tell them they're idiots. You have to seduce them. You have to go out of your way to 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 reach out to them, and 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 go halfway towards them. Uh, that may be true for many people, but it wasn't true for me. Mm. I think probably there is there are some people who would who would call that uncompromising. Would you say that you are quite an uncompromising uh, person in that sense? You don't see you don't see a value in in approaching people that way. You'd rather just bring them the truth. No, I do. I do see a value, and no, I you think do. That, that, that the to the extent that I am uncompromising may be may make me ineffective in changing people's minds. All I was saying in answer to your question was that 
when I felt I'd been a fool, I didn't mind. I didn't mind that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's something so important to try and uh, bring up in children. You know, I had to have a um, a couple of children in whom I've got an interest through through, through my friends. I'm a sort of secular godparent, and I we were really careful really early on um, when we were. Um, talking to them to try and communicate some of the sort of the the joy in being wrong, you know, saying, "Oh, and and, and we've got that wrong. Isn't that wonderful? We can find out something else now." And I think it's, it's that is absolutely right. That's totally right, and that should be a proper scientist attitude. But it's difficult to convey. I think people don't people don't like. Well, we know from from psychology that people's biases in favour of continuing to believe what they've always believed are very strong, and they'll do all sorts of things for that and to there survive. Are people who take it as a personal insult to be told they're wrong. I mean, I, I once wrote an, a, a book review in, I think, the New York Times, in which I said that anybody who purports to not believe in evolution is either ignorant, stupid, or insane. And that caused immense upset to people. <laughs> it really shouldn't have done, because being ignorant is not a sin. I mean, no. We're all ignorant of most of the things that there are to know. And to be told that you're ignorant of... I don't know, American football or something. It's mm. not an insult. It's, it's just true. Hi, this is Andrew, appearing halfway through the podcast to remind you that this is a podcast from Humanist UK, the national charity working on behalf of non-religious people to advance free thinking and promote a tolerant society. If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the humanist approach to life, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, Humanists. UK. And if you like what you see, please consider giving us your support or joining as a member. As well as science, of course, um, your, your name is a, a byword for uh, disbelief in gods. Um, and atheism is, you know, probably uh, the thing after the communication of science that you're, that you're best known for. So I think we have to talk a little bit um, about that. And I'm always interested in people's beliefs about this to some extent, because I've, I've never, I mean, I'm one of those people who's never even seriously entertained the question of God, you know, it wasn't a feature of my upbringing, it wasn't a feature of, you know, my life in any way, I introduced to the question sort of, in late teen years, and just sort of thought, well, you know, ridiculous. Um, but that wasn't the case for you, because you did, I think, in common with most people, um, of your age and, and background, I suppose, have have a sort of Christian upbringing. Well, do you mean that uh, you didn't get it at school? No, I didn't. No, I didn't. I mean, I have come from a humanist family, and my my primary school was in a very multi ethnic area in the in the Midlands. And so, in uh, they, in those days, it's probably quite different now. But in those days, that was a sort of invitation to um, to 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 the teaching staff to to not really do any religion. We we learned about all sorts of different religions, but we didn't have prayers and hymns. No. Well, you're very fortunate. Uh, I, I mean, I didn't get get it from my parents. I, I got it from school, not in a desperately indoctrinated sort of way. I mean, it was it was fairly much, the Church of England, which is a pretty weakened strain of the virus. It, it doesn't really it doesn't really um, badly imprint itself upon you the way Roman Catholicism and Islam do. Uh, so I, I I couldn't really complain of being of being very heavily indoctrinated. I think. But was it the background, sort of almost like the background condition of your upbringing? I mean, if you go through school, I know the people who even who go to Church of England schools now who um, sort of have to have to then unthink a lot of assumptions afterwards because they were just sort of there in the background. Yes, it was. Background is about right. And, and, and the, the headmaster of my primary school 
um, was very keen on religion and he insisted that we should all be confirmed, which was a bit, I mean, it wasn't very common to be confirmed before the, before the age of about 14, but we were all confirmed at 13. Um, and that was because he was, had a particular enthusiasm for that, for it. I see. He actually told my parents, I think it was, that uh, he thought it very important that we should be confirmed while we were still young in case we, we were sort of got at later by, by um, secular interests. Oh, <laughs> he was trying to inoculate you the other way. <laughs> yes, but, but not in a very effective way. No, obviously not. <laughs> so I, I take it from that then that simply you just, um, it was because it was just a background uh, theme. It wasn't ever the serious, a serious focus of belief. And so when you became a scientist, it just sort of fell away almost unexamined, or was it an active process of, of, of coming to a conclusion about God? Yeah, it was a bit more active than that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, th I think uh, I, I went through a phase of kind of deism, uh, sort of uh, being impressed by the complexity of life and the universe and thinking, well, gosh, there must be some kind of designer there. And it was only when I finally tumbled to the power of Darwinism that I got rid of that. But it, but it, 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 I did think about it. It, 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 was, it. it was something that I thought hard about. I think that's really useful to know because I'm sure that you've experienced as a criticism, I've certainly seen it as a criticism of, of both you and, and others, you know, in, in, in our sort of um, shared area of work, that, you know, that a commitment to atheism is somehow ideological you know, that it's the start point. But what you've just said makes it very clear that for most people, and certainly it sounds like for you, it's the end point. It's the, it's the conclusion of a process of examining the evidence rather than a doctrinaire starting point. Yes, that's right. It, it was the conclusion for, for me. And I, I do think that it is, I mean, wrong though it is, the God hypothesis is kind of scientifically challenging. I mean, it's, it, it is an alternative view of the universe and if it were true, which I'm sure it isn't, but if it were true, it would be the most important scientific truth there is. It's not something that's kind of trivial one way or the other. Uh, it, it definitely matters. Uh, and, and so I, I'm, I'm not one of those who says, oh, why bother? You know, who, who cares? It's just get on with your life. It, it is a very important question. I think it's, it is a scientific question. Um, if, if there really is a creator of the universe, then it is an entirely different kind of universe from if there isn't one. That's a scientific difference. How many people that you've encountered though in your in your own work and speaking and just conversations, how many religious people you encountered really actually do have that view of things though? Because I mean, in my experience, it's it's mostly people who've been raised that way and, and, and haven't given it a second thought really. They haven't often, I mean, you know, the Alistair McGrath of the world may be, but most people haven't sort of reasoned it through and come to the the theistic conclusion in, in my experience. Has that been yours? Or yes, I think that's right. I think that's rather sad. I mean, I think, I think you should think about it, if you, especially if you're brought up that way, you should think about it. Um, and, and then you should come to the right conclusion. But, but it's, it's not something that's, that's, that's so trivial, it's not worth thinking about. We've spoken about science, we've spoken about um, God, although it's interesting that for you really, I think God is just a, a subset of the theme of science because you've come to your beliefs at in accordance with the scientific method, really. Um, I want to talk a little bit there about um, politics, because I know that um, recently you've been uh, speaking a little bit more um, about uh, politics and political values. And I think it'd be fair to say that um, you're a, well, you describe yourself, but I'm going to guess that you're a sort of liberal. Yes. And do you have um, 
are you conscious uh, in yourself of of having developed either recently or, or or across time distinctive political values in that in that sense? Um, not really sure about that. Uh, I, I suppose in the current political climate of Boris Johnson here and Donald Trump in America, uh, which are the two countries I take a, most interest in, um, to be a liberal is to be opposed to them. Uh, which I am passionately. Um, I, I dare say that I, I mean, I'm not necessarily at one with all the sorts of people who call themselves liberals. I mean, I'm not one who goes along toppling statues of 17th century people. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty contemptuous of people who worry about cultural appropriation and that kind of thing. So I, I'm not a liberal in that sense. One of the aspects of a liberal position, of course, um, is that people should have freedom of conscience, freedom of belief, um, freedom of religion. Have you ever had any problems, um, as some people think that people like us must do, have you ever had personally any problems squaring that liberal commitment off with your feeling that um, religious people are, as, as you put it, um, at best sort of misguided and, and at worst deluded? Do you think that um, that's consistent with a liberal position? Well, I do believe in freedom of belief. I, I do not believe in indoctrination, and therefore uh, I do not believe that my beliefs in atheism, for example, should be thrust down the throats of children any more than I think religious beliefs should be thrust down the throats of children. I think that uh, what, should be, what sh children should be taught is to think for themselves and uh, commensurate with their age. It's not possible necessarily to think at, at, at every age in the same way. Um, but I, I am uh, against indoctrination. I'm against compulsory thought of any kind. Uh, and so, um, as I say, I, I, I like to teach people how to think, not what to think. It sounds like what you're saying there is is that, yes, you do believe in freedom and, and freedom even for children who are, by the way, human beings as well. That's sort of the thrust of what you're saying. Yes, exactly. I'm I'm very much against indoctrination of children. I'm very much against, as you know, labelling of children with the the beliefs of their of their parents. And I'm fond of satirising it by saying, imagine if you talked about a logical positivist child or a, or an existentialist child or something. Nobody would ever do that, and yet they're quite happy to talk about a Catholic child or a Muslim child. And and I'm really passionate against that. And do you think that's making you know? gaining any ground that view of yours because i know this is something you've been keenly promoting for a couple of decades now well, we tried a, i mean we, we, <laughs> we collaborated did. on on on, a, on i think another of those bus campaigns that's right the, yeah the don't the don't label me campaign that's right I, mean, I would like to have another go at that uh i i i think it, it wasn't so well publicized as the original bus campaign the there probably isn't any god so so enjoy it was something like that <laughs> No, I think you're right, but I think that might not. I don't think that was just for um, circumstantial reasons. I think actually there is something that a lot of people find very difficult about that idea because a lot of people do still think of sort of children in a sense as uh, possessions of their parents, you know, um, beings with whom you can sort of do what you want for intellectually at least for as long as they're in your care. And I think that that's that's uh, people, a lot of people have difficulty with realizing yeah. that yeah. they're not that. Some um, children are not that. Have you read a rather fine uh, lecture to, now published by Nick Humphrey called What Shall We Tell the Children? Strongly recommend it. It's, it's published in various places. Uh, Nick, Nicholas Humphrey, What Shall We Tell the Children? Um, and he has takes a rather, what some people think, a rather extreme view. He says you should no more 
teach a child obvious falsehoods, then you should knock their teeth out. Right. Um, well, that's a bit extreme, but but um, because physical damage is, in some respects, obviously worse. But still, it's, he's got a point, I think. Um, and one of the illustrations he makes use of is the so-called Ice Maiden of the Incas. Um, this was a, a girl, I think she was something like a 15-year-old girl, who in the, uh, in the Inca period um, was sacrificed to the gods, probably to the sun god, um, and her body was found, and, and archaeologists sort of pieced together what happened, that she must have been a, a sacrifice. And Nick says that he saw a television documentary in which the commentary glorified this and said, what a privilege this girl, this girl must have felt so privileged and so honoured that she was going to be sacrificed to the gods. And, and, and Nick says, you know, how dare they suggest that, that this poor girl uh, was, was being sacrificed in, in this way. And, and, and it's a very powerful essay. I, I recommend it to you and to li listeners to this. And I suppose his point is that, um, is what, that we should apply our own values even when looking at situations like that out of yes, our own I mean, what Yes, what he tries to say is that all, even if it's true that the that, that girl wanted to be sacrificed, and he thinks he's highly doubtful about that, as am sure. I, uh, but even if it were true, um, we, we are entitled in our moral judgments to, to, to say, would she have wanted that if she had known everything that, 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 that is to be, to be known? Um, if, if she hadn't been brought up in a, in a climate of utter falsehood. Now, of course, anthropologists jump, try, j jump down your throat at that point and say, well, it's only falsehood to you. They thought it was true. Um, and I think his point would be, well, no, it is actually false. Um, there is no sun god. Um, we know that. Uh, and um, we'll read it anyway. It's very good. Yeah, I will do. I will do. I mean, I, obviously, you're expressing there as well um, a belief, which I take it that you have a um, about values, which is that um, values change over time, and that we're entitled to make value judgments based on what we know now of of others, even in their um, relative lack of knowledge. Is that right? On the other hand, I, I, I'm not in favour of 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 applying a judgments of historical figures, like knocking down statues. Uh, because, <laughs> well, that might be an inconsistency that you might have to resolve. No, no that's exactly why I raised it. I don't think right. it's inconsistent. Okay. Um, uh, I, I think we have to recognise that, that 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 standards change, and 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 it's it's the job of a decent historian not to judge a uh, a, a a historical figure by the standards of, of of today. What do you think about the argument? I'm not sure if we'll include this in the end, but just just because I'm interested now in what you think. What do you think about the argument that statues aren't um, his aspects of history, they're aspects of the present and that therefore you know just as you um, uh, you can't change history, you can't rewrite it, you can't say this person didn't think these things but you can say now we realise that slavery is wrong we will cease to venerate this statue remove it. Yes, well venerate I, I, I wouldn't venerate it but, no. but something like um well, I don't know whether there's any move to abolish Rhodes Scholars, but but um, mm -hmm. I, I that's really hitting hitting home rather more than just a, a mere statue. You can appreciate Kipling from a literary point of view, appreciate his poetry as I do, uh, without endorsing his imperialist views, which were of his time. Is there anything you think that people would be surprised to know? 
any belief um, that you have that might take them by surprise. Not sure about that. No, I, I, um, I'm grateful to you for concentrating on science to begin with, by the way. It's not the way people normally approach me, and, and I'm, I'm glad of it. Well, I think it's really important to do that, though, because, I mean, I, maybe that's my professional experience as well of people's attitude towards us as people who don't believe in gods, is they always assume that that's somehow your starting point, and it really yeah. isn't. I mean, it might be important for all the reasons that we've uh, discussed, but it's not the premise of things. No, exactly right, yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, then, in that... Oh, maybe you, you asked me whether I, I would surprise anybody, whether, whether anybody would be surprised by me. I think... I seem to have picked up the idea that some people think I'm rather aggressive and um, intolerant, and 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 I, I don't think I am. I think I think I'm. Why do you think people think that rather you're gentle, really? I mean, I'm yeah, well, I agree with you, Richard. <laughs> why <laughs> Why do you think people do feel sometimes that way? I mean, that's the the caricature of of, of you in 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 the, in the popular mind to the extent that that's the case. I think is that you know aggressive, intolerant, sort of militant. Well, I think it's why? because I think it's because this actually should apply to any atheist really is that because religion has had a free pass for so long and because um uh they're so used to the idea that you cannot it's not somehow polite to, to criticize religion therefore anybody who does so must automatically have a kind of raised voice and be, be, be strident and aggressive when all all he's actually doing is is speaking in quite reasonable subdued tones so it's the it's it's the it's the sort of aggregation of um, respect that's developed around religious themes that that makes you look shrill, makes Precisely. one look shrill. Precisely, yeah. yeah, yeah. I suppose that's right, isn't it? And I think probably also you might add to that something we discussed earlier the um, the difficulty that lots of people have in accepting the the value neutral nature of descriptions like ignorance, for example. Oh yes, there's there's that too. Mm. Yes. And added together, you can see why that might create a certain impression. I think there's a third factor. When we were talking about clarity of style, uh, if, uh, they are, if they are used to ob obfuscatory style, obscurantist style, then anybody who works hard at being clear, anybody who even, dare I say, sounds clear, uh, sounds aggressive because clarity to some, in some minds actually is aggressive. They don't like clarity. They're kind of used to obscurity and so clarity sounds blunt yes science poetry wanting to be understood being glad to change your mind clarity thank you richard dawkins for telling us what you believe thank you very much andrew that was richard dawkins telling us about his outlook on the world as a humanist for the what i believe podcast what i believe is a weekly podcast from humanists uk and this was the second episode of the third season we'll be releasing new episodes every thursday if you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about Humanism, Humanists UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanists UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider joining as a supporter or a member. You can also, to find out more about Humanism, purchase the Sunday Times best-selling The Little Book of Humanism, available now at all good bookshops. <laughs>